This is Mike Campbell. You're listening to Money Talks. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a technology-based investment, but it's a royalty-based one. That means you get paid first, and there are no fees involved. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. Yesterday, I got a lot of flack for a comment that pointed out that the Liberals read the pulse of the Canadian voter far more accurately than the other parties when it came to Canadians' appetite for getting something for nothing. As George Bernard Shaw famously said, governments that rob Peter to pay Paul can count in the support of Paul. So liberal voters can send all the hate mail they want, but the fact remains, from his first speech in running for the leadership of the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau consistently stated he was going to take money from those people making over $200,000 and give it to the middle class. And I applaud his honesty, because this is a big departure from the regular BS that we're taxing to help the poor, the vulnerable. That's not been true for over a generation, despite the self-congratulatory rhetoric of the self-described progressive left. The numbers are very clear on that. And I mean, sure, some people don't like it pointed out, but the evidence as to where the majority of tax revenue goes is overwhelming. And during this election, the fact remains, in every TV ad, Mr. Trudeau promised to take more money from those earning over $200,000 and give it to the middle class. That was the primary financial focus of his campaign. Yes, there was one other prominent pillar, and that was that the new infrastructure spending was going to be paid for by increasing the debt load on future generations. But it's the same theme. Vote for me, and you'll get something for nothing. But back to the relentless promise to increase taxes on anyone earning over 200000 Despite the fact that, depending on the province, most already are paying more than 50% of their income in some form of tax. And by the way, to his credit, the NDP's Thomas Mulcair disagreed with the approach. He clearly stated that taking more than 50% of someone's earning was not taxation, but confiscation. And I think he's absolutely right. I mean, forcing someone to work more for the state than for their families is a major attack on individual freedom. And it can only be done through the threat of heavy, heavy-handed coercion by the state. And it's also disingenuous to suggest that it comes with no economic or social consequences. In pushing that agenda, though, Mr. Trudeau, his Liberal MPs and their supporters show a blatant disdain for the value of work ethic. And that is a trend that's been ongoing in Canada, again, for over a generation. While he never mentioned it once during the campaign, the research is unequivocal that the key characteristic of those in the top 1% of income earners, above $200,000, is that they work about 30% more hours per week and have a higher level of post-secondary education, oft times racking up more student debt in gaining their demand or their in-demand skills. But none of that was mentioned. Mr. Trudeau's approach is based on nothing more than You've got more, and government's going to take it, or else. This is a fascinating reflection, though, on the character of the vast majority of Canadians today. A huge departure, by the way, from past generations that actually celebrated work ethic. Now, keep in mind that the NDP didn't disagree with the fundamental approach. They had a different target, though, and that was business, which simply means taking more money from shareholders and workers. You know, most people don't seem to understand that the principal shareholders of Canada's major corporations are pensions. And we're in a real challenge for the pension environment. So the NDP's plan to raise business taxes would restrict a pension's ability to grow their investments. And what many workers don't seem to get is that the higher level of business taxation, the less money is available for raises and other forms of compensation. But like the Liberals, 
The NDP did not mention the poor or homeless in any of their TV ads. Neither did the Conservatives. The inescapable common thread in the NDP and Liberal approaches is the familiar refrain of something for nothing. Vote for me and I will take money from someone else and transfer it to you. But as economist Thomas Sowell correctly points out, money is not distributed. It is earned. Coming up, top three things that smart people are talking about with Michael Levy, plus Mike's big fat idea. And I'm really looking forward to this. We've got Dr. Michael Berry, who just made a presentation to the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, fascinating take on what's going to happen to Canadian econ- uh, commodities, rather, what gold, that kind of stuff. You're listening to Money Talks, Money Talks sponsored by Solera Club. Find them at soleraclub.com. I think you're going to absolutely love Dr. Michael Berry. I'm absolutely fascinated to see some of the information he's got about the direction of where commodities are headed. Big import for Canada, of course. What What's happening when he presented himself again to the Federal Reserve. All of that coming your way. Also, Mike's big fat idea is on deck. Michael Levy joins me now talking about the top three stories that smart people are talking about. Put them on your radar screen. Mike, what's number three? Well, number three, Mike, just brings home the story that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with the New York Times and the success they have had by uh, their uh, going digital and being able to attract online so many readers and also keep the subscriptions of their actual physical newspapers in a very healthy state. Post Media, their publishers of the National Post and the Sun and Province in Vancouver, Calgary Herald, Edmonton Journal, as you go across the country, and they said they, they just reported a $54 million loss in the fourth quarter with falling revenue. Mike, they're trying to go digital, but they keep bleeding money, and one has to wonder how much money they can bleed and still survive. Well, I mean, it's typical of what's gone on in the entire media industry. I remember several years ago, Warren Buffett said he wouldn't own a newspaper if it was free. And I think part of it is, is can you make the adjustments, change your revenue model, but also your cost base in time? You know, the clock is ticking. They certainly take a a number of steps in that direction, but it's a major challenge. I mean, it's just, as I say, it seems like there, you know, uh, there's a sprint toward getting into uh, and keeping up with the massive changes in how people are receiving their information, uh, but in a t- in a manner that which can stem those losses. Well, and, and Mike, I, I I certainly couldn't agree with you more. But there's two ways to look at this. Number one, cost cutting. You talked about that on this morning's uh, uh, a visit with Jill Bennett for those in the Vancouver area, and talked about cost cutting and the Canadian banks. Well, you can only cut so many costs before you're going to have to bring the new thing, the new way. If you're in retail, you're going to have to eventually increase sales. If you're in the media, you're eventually going to have to come with a product that the public wants and are willing to pay for. You can't do it all on cost-cutting. And the last one that Post Media did was going uh, into tablets, evening tableted even evening tablet editions at the Calgary Herald, Ottawa Journal, and Montreal Gazette. They invested in it heavily to hope to boost ad revenue, and they've just canceled all three projects and taken a big write down on that. So the question becomes when do we bring enough to the table to attract readers in this new format? 
Again, it's a very sophisticated challenge in front of them. I mean, uh, you know, to be able to decide they've changed their production facilities, et cetera, as more and more goes digital. And, of course, this is a story that's ongoing not just for them but for the entire industry. Let's go to number two. Oh, Mike, this is a really interesting story, and I don't know whether uh, most of the listeners or even readers of newspapers, again, uh, would or seen it online, but HSBC uh, plans to muscle in on Canada's banks by funding Trudeau infrastructure projects. And that means that when this Liberal government goes out and starts to spend 4 or $5 billion a year, or whatever the figure is, it's going to have to be financed. And HSBC, uh, one of the world's, if not the world's largest bank, but the most international bank for sure, wants a good piece of that action. And because of their contacts worldwide and the fact that they can draw on funding in Asia or in Europe because of their huge reach, they want part of that pie, and they're prepared to come to the table and go up against Canada's big five banks in order to fund infrastructure. Well, I mean, they're looking at what, uh, you know, this this massive infrastructure deficit, uh, you know, doesn't matter where you live. I mean, certainly the Liberal program of spending $5 billion this year, 10 in each of the next two, isn't going to, I mean, it certainly helps, but there's far more infrastructure changes to come that the province is going to be financing. So, yeah, they're looking at a very, very big market here. Well, Mike, they did. They, 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 they just got into, broke into the Canadian market by um, doing a great, a really good part of the uh, reconstruction of the Champlain Bridge in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And uh, HSBC and National Bank of Canada together raised about $690 million with two bond sales. Uh, by the way, 30-year bond at 4.1%, 34-year bond at 4.2%. But they also helped put together a syndicate for a lot of the rest of the financing, including the Bank of China and two Japanese banks, along with themselves, to lend the rest. So very, very, to me, very interesting, very telling how international this financing has become. And the fact is Canada's big five don't have an exclusive purview to finance. You can go anywhere in the world, and HSBC proves that. What's the number one story? Oh, boy. You're going to love this one, Mike. Alberta's budget deficit. Why spending and not declining energy prices are to blame for this 5.9 or larger $5.9 billion deficit in Alberta. Again, it's not plunging oil prices particularly. It's higher spending over the last number of years, 10 years to be exact, and that's what's causing the deficit. Well, I think the challenge was this, is that they were making financial projections based on oil remaining at that $100 mark or whatever it was. I mean, every budget has to make some sort of uh, forecast on a major revenue source like what happens with the price of oil, but theirs was uh, obviously didn't see the downturn coming uh, under the Conservatives. I think the Conservative government was incredibly imprudent in uh, anticipating a continued windfall that way, and I couldn't agree more, Mike, is that the, when you base a cost structure of government on that kind of a variable with not obviously near enough cushion if they're wrong, uh, yeah, and I mean, keep in mind, as everyone uh, listening with us today in Edmonton, Calgary, etc., knows, is that not only did they burn through all of their uh, budgetary revenues, but they also went into the Heritage Fund. I mean, yeah, it was an absolute spending spree uh, based on, obviously, uh, an assumption about oil prices that has proved to be profoundly incorrect. 
Absolutely, Mike. And I'm just going to run a couple of very quick figures by you. Um, between April 2010 and uh, August 2014, oil was over 90 and in, mo- in a lot of cases over $100 a barrel for those four years. But listen to this. Between 2004 and 2014, 2015, government program spending increased by 98.3%. That was double the rate of inflation plus population growth and significantly above the rate of economic growth, which was about 88.5% in the province. Had they restrained program spending growth to keep pace with inflation plus population, they'd be looking at a $4.4 billion surplus rather than the $6 billion deficit. And if they had just done increased program spending at the rate of economic growth in the last 10 years, they could have had a surplus of $1.9 billion this year. So you're right. It's not just the NDP going forward with a $6 billion deficit, but it was the Conservatives thinking that they were going to be in heaven with $100 oil prices forever. I just had one more figure coming out of the University of Calgary. They did a report looking at uh, the growth in oil or revenue, government revenues, 2008 to two, the beginning of 2013. 2008, beginning of 2013. You know, at a time you can remember that's a credit crunch when other jurisdictions are, were having a disaster on their hands. Their revenues grew 47 percent. 95 cents out of every dollar went to public sector salaries and benefits. Obviously not sustainable when you look at the downturn in oil, 5.9 billion as you're alluding to, Mike. Uh, I don't think that's, and I don't think that's the end of that story, by the way. (laughs) Neither do I, Mike. And Rachel Notley now has just pushed out one year uh, forecasting a balanced budget, and that's a rogues game at any time for any government. But now instead of 2019, she's talking about having their first balanced budget in 2020. So we're talking about another five years of deficits, and who knows where that number is going to be five years from now. Well, she inherited a mess, but I think she's exacerbated it. If you want to diversify your economy, which, by the way, is overstated when you talk about oil, the government revenues needed diversification, but not actually the economy, uh, anywhere near the same degree. But I'll just add one more thing is you don't raise taxes on business, create a level of uncertainty and say and, and act as if that is going to encourage capital investment. And that's still the name of the game. Mike, thanks very much for taking the time. Have a terrific weekend. You too, Mike. Thanks. Michael Levy, top three stories. Take a break. He'll come back. Hey, we got a big, fat investment idea for you. Mike, big, fat idea coming up right here on the Chorus Radio Network. Time for Mike's big, fat investment idea. Joining me on the line right now, I've got Jamie Switzer. He's a senior vice president of Raymond James. Jamie, first of all, thank you for taking the time this weekend. And uh, as you know, let's just get right to it. What do you got for us? Thanks, Mike. Uh, I know some of your listeners will be rolling their eyes, but there is the prospect of rising interest rates. It's coming, it's just a matter of when. So my idea is, how can we protect a portion of their portfolios in a rising rate environment? The answer is, Canada is home to a number of high-quality life insurance companies, namely Manulife, Sunlife, and Great West Life Parent Power Corp. This sector stands to benefit greatly from even small moves in rates, and a big move higher would be a windfall. Well, let me just, okay, so uh, we're looking at, uh, as you say, these major insurance companies. How do they benefit, actually, when rates start edging up? Well, insurance companies hold extraordinary amounts of cash on deposit and continue to collect premiums throughout the year. Profits grow with each rise in rates, and those margins fall right to the company's bottom line. Uh, Another reason insurers usually prosper in rising rates is 
that rate hikes often are a product of a healthier economy, ultimately providing a lift to their underlying businesses. And finally, rates rise uh, on most of the products, will, making them more attractive to consumers and will lead to a sig- significant increase in margins. Yeah, it's interesting that first one is as people forget that they have a lot of cash. They're also earning incredibly low rates of return on it, you know, like all of us as savers. So, yeah, that little bump up goes right to the bottom line. That's a very interesting one. I'd also add to it, yeah, I think a lot of people aren't uh, don't even have a portion of their portfolio in something that would anticipate even a small bump, right. you know, in rates. So I think that's, that's very interesting. Uh, who is this for? Like, who should be listening to this, the kind of investor? It doesn't sound like a trading idea to me, for example. No, it's really a scenario I'd consider for uh, most of my clients with a long-term outlook who are looking to protect mm-hmm. capital, uh, collect dividends, and provide themselves with the opportunity for some additional growth. Uh, many Canadians view their bank stocks as a guaranteed source of growth and dividends, and that's often been the case. But, you know, I'd encourage you to look back at 08 and 09 and see how quickly that security can get eroded mm-hmm. uh, I'm still a big fan of the big six banks, but definitely trimming back larger bank holdings and encouraging clients to look in the direction of the insurers. What kind of dividends are these? You know, you mentioned some quality stocks like Manulife, and uh, I mean, the, the list is, is a good one there, uh, Sun Life. What kind of dividend are they paying now? What yield is it? Uh, you're not sacrificing anything to move a portion of your bank holdings. You're looking at 3 to 4% still. Okay, so yeah, I mean that's a, that's a, I find that a fascinating idea, as I say, because I don't think too many people are situated in that, and the fact that they already pay a dividend, uh, you know, that certainly helps out a lot. You know, especially a good one. I mean, that's certainly better than bank interest by quite a ways. Better than a ten-year uh, government bond. Also, uh, do you have sort of a time frame? Again, I just want to make sure. You know, people are saying, "Well, I've got a three-month time frame. I don't think this is it for them." So this it sounds more core holding-ish. Yeah, and and uh, um, Manulife and Sunlife have both recently raised their dividends, so. Um, if you look back at history, that's often uh, the start of a number of increases. So these investments could be well positioned for a long time. And Manulife's trading about half of where it was in 08. So uh, yeah. good value there. Interesting stuff. A great big fat idea. People should check with your financial advisor. Check about these quality. You know, I'm talking quality as uh, you know, very clearly stated here by Jamie, but quality uh, insurance companies. Jamie, thanks for taking the time on the weekend. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks a lot. Great stuff. Coming up, Dr. Michael Berry. This is uh, uh, an incredibly important time. You know, we talk all the time, uh, as Victor and I do, that you're trading central bank policy. Well, this is a guy who presents to it. But today I also want to ask him about the commodity cycle. You know, are we getting near the bottom? We're starting to hear some of that kind of stuff or not? Well, Dr. Michael Berry is a terrific guy to be asking about that. So gold, all the other commodities, stay with us on Money Talks.